You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, as companies make plans to ask office workers to return to working in person, we'll consider the question of ventilation and whether it can make a difference in workplace safety with regard to the coronavirus. Lots of people are saying all we have to do is ventilate and we can get rid of masks. And, and that the answer to that is no. There's no amount of ventilation that will allow you to get rid of masks and or distancing, masks being the most important. And so they, they don't want to wear masks, right? And so you say, well, just tell me how much ventilation I need uh, so I don't have to wear a mask. And the answer is there's, it's an infinite amount. There's no amount that will protect you from that short range exposure. Once you ha- have the mask, then our current ventilation rates are uh, appear to be enough. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. By now, public health agencies have clearly sent the message that it's much less likely to contract COVID-19 outdoors. Well, as the state reopens, some companies are looking to bring their staff who have been working from home back indoors to the office, where often there aren't operable windows. Plus, as much of the region endures a heat wave and fires start to break out, there's the looming concern of wildfire smoke blanketing the state again. So is better indoor ventilation the answer? Today, we'll hear from Steve Taylor, founding principal of the consulting firm Taylor Engineering in Alameda. He's a registered mechanical engineer specializing in heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system design and indoor air quality engineering, among other things. We talked about research that his firm has done on the question of what role ventilation could play in mitigating the spread of the coronavirus. So your company issued a white paper on ventilation and COVID-19, which has some um, pretty direct answers and then a lot of details, which I'd like to get into. You're getting the question from a lot of clients. Can our buildings HVAC systems, perhaps with some enhancements, make our buildings safe to occupy as they were before the pandemic? And Taylor Engineering's opinion is absolutely not. And you go on to say that HVAC systems can mitigate disease transmission, but not as well as other mitigation measures. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So ventilation by itself um, is not going to uh, completely eliminate transmission paths. So you you essentially have three paths of transmission, um, or at least that's the common way of of, uh, categorizing these things. You have short-range transmission where I'm, I'm next to you and I'm talking or coughing or laughing or uh, emitting particles that may uh, have uh, viable viruses in them. And if I'm in close range to you, whether the particles are large or small, and there's lots of controversy on that, ventilation is not going to help you. Um, it's just too close uh, range. Ventilation dilutes like the whole big picture of small particles, but it, it isn't going to dilute the cloud in front of you. So the analogy that people often use is cigarette smoking. So if I were smoking a cigarette and I blew the smoke into your face, it really doesn't matter what the ventilation rate is. You're, you're going to smell that smoke. You're going you're gonna to sense it. So ventilation can help mitigate the uh, longer range, small particles that I emit. So if I emit a particle and it floats around um, and it, be, it behaves like air, then ventilation can dilute that. So, so again, the first two, me- uh, the close range, it's not going to do anything. And then the other uh, paths is fomites, which is where you, you, you cough and deposit some, some saliva, say, onto a surface, and then somebody else touches it and then touches their face. Um, so that latter path is not considered to be very prominent with uh, COVID. And so you have the short range, long range, and the fomites. And v- ventilation only affects the long range aerosol transmission path, and it does nothing on the other two. 
Um, so it'll never be sufficient. You know, it, it, it's necessary, but it's never sufficient. You just described it as the other two. And I thought one of the interesting things in this white paper is a sort of peeling apart of the logic behind that idea. Um, because as you mentioned, you know, we don't think necessarily, or, or, or the message from health agencies is probably fomites. So surface transmission is not a, a vector of concern for the spread of disease. But basically, we have the other categories of how this can spread divided into two subcategories, bigger, heavier droplets, like from a cough or sneeze that fly very quickly over a short distance, or, um, you know, small, tiny particles that float around. Um, and, and so what the white paper suggests is that arguing over which one is more prevalent is kind of useless at this point, And we should go forward assuming that they're both right and both possible. And but there's actually three types of transmission through these little particles in the air. Um, can you describe why we should think about it in terms of, you know, I, I think you describe it as a trichotomy. Yeah, well, the, the original um, concept was that it was either big particles or little particles. And in fact, there's a whole continuum of particles. The um, logic was that if, uh, if they're big particles, the six foot separation uh, does the job. And uh, if you find that there's transmission beyond six feet, then there has to be little particles doing it. Um, well, it doesn't, there's a whole continuum of particles and the medium sized particles are ones that, you know, between the ones that are heavy droplets, 100 microns and, and more that drop out of the air fairly quickly versus the um, very small aerosols that behave like air. There's a whole continuum in between um, that sort of be, behaves in between those two. They can be, uh, they don't drop out uh, by gravity uh, as quickly. They can be blown further. Um, like the famous uh, Gangju restaurant example where these particles got blown from one uh, table to another and that, that violated the six-foot rule and everybody said, aha, it must be aerosols. But no, it doesn't necessarily have to be aerosols. It can just be the medium-range particles that are more susceptible to being blown around. And ventilation, again, only affects the, the aerosols, the ones that behave uh, almost like a gas. Right. Uh, you just use the word aerosol. Um, I'm hoping you can explain the difference between how doctors think of and use the terms airborne and aerosol and how engineers use those words. Yeah, one of the big problems with uh, uh, this whole thing has been that terminology. Um, people use the word airborne um, and airborne just means it's borne by air. It, it can be, you know, it, it could be you know, the sort of joke is that Dorothy's house and going up in a tornado uh, is airborne. Um, <laughs> So the, uh, some people say airborne and they immediately say aerosol, uh, but other, most uh, in our business, uh, li little particles are aerosols um, and airborne, you know, it's just as a vague term that's all these other uh, paths in between. Um, so people use those terms, um, to, you know, as if they're one, but they're not in, in, from an engineering standpoint. So where does that leave us in terms of precautions to take? Because social distancing might not help with things that float long distances over a long period of time, but ventilation, like in the in the smoke analogy that you gave, isn't going to help if someone, you know, sneezes in your face, right? Right. So what we say in the white paper and what I've, we've deduced from all the research, and, and pretty much nothing has refuted this, is that you need masks um, uh, well, obviously, if you're, uh, uh, if we, we have everybody um, with vaccines, that's that's another solution. But um, short of that, if there's infected people, uh, masks become necessary because they they not only can mitigate that short range exposure, 
but they also mitigate the long-range exposure. They reduce the amount of aerosols that are emitted as well, and they reduce the amount of aerosols that you can breathe in um, as well. And what we found is in the calculations and the review of the literature um, is that without masks, and, and again, look just looking at the aerosol side now, without masks, the source strength is high enough that the ventilation rates required to keep transmission uh, risk down below 1%, which is a number of people uh, jump on as being reasonable risk, um, is huge. You would have to have gigantic ventilation rates that are not practical to provide and certainly not energy efficient to provide. Um, so you have to have masks for the short range and the, the masks also benefit the long range. And once you do have that reduction in source strength, our, our calculations and others have said that the current ventilation rates that are required by building codes right now um, are, are sufficient or almost sufficient anyway to um, mitigate uh, the long range pass as well and to keep that risk uh, acceptable. So why is the answer to the first question so strong? Can HVAC systems in a building, perhaps with some enhancements, make our buildings safe to occupy as they were before the pandemic? Is that because the only way to get this down, the risk down to acceptable levels, is mask wearing? Well, the, the, lots of people are saying all we have to do is ventilate and we can get rid of masks. Um, and and that the answer to that is no. You, you, there's no amount of ventilation that will allow you to get rid of masks. Uh, and or distancing, masks being the most important. And and so uh, people, they, they don't want to wear masks, right? And so you say, well, just tell me how much ventilation I need uh, so I don't have to wear a mask. And the answer is there's, it's an infinite amount. There's no amount that will protect you from that short range uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. And then once you ha have the mask, then our current ventilation rates are uh, appear to be enough. And there's controversy on that as well. So I, I can't say there's not, but that's our feeling. And one of our biggest concerns is that we still have climate change to worry about. And if we do all sorts of very energy intensive mitigations, such as increasing ventilation rates and outdoor air rates, um, we're, we're, we're going to hurt that battle as well. Mm. So we have to be very confident that what we're doing is truly effective before we screw up the other side. <laughs> That's a great point. I would like to pause here before we get into the uh, fallout of climate change and have you explain, if you could, in layman's terms, how ventilation really moves air? Because looking through this white paper, I'm seeing diagrams and calculations that are far, far, far beyond me. But I think that people have this idea that if you have a vent or even an air filter, that it's moving, you know, large volumes of air that over a certain period of time, all of the air in a room will eventually go through this filter or, you know, I, I, that's how I think of it. And I think of it very vaguely. I suspect that maybe some people are a bit smarter than me on this, but um, how how much air in a room is really moved by ventilation and, and can we expect that if there is you know an HVAC system for example that the air in a space that we're in is being continuously filtered yes that's a complicated question um, we generally think of our and design our HVAC system to be what we call mixing systems so you you blow air into a space um, and it it mixes with the air in the space and primarily we do that to keep you from having a draft if we blew cold air on you directly, you wouldn't be comfortable. So we mm -hmm. deliberately mix it so that it blends through a diffuser and, um, and, it, and it you know mixes together before you, uh, that air comes down to your level. There's a, there's a term called air changes where it's, or air exchange rate 
uh, it's the same thing. It, and they people say it's how many times you change the air in an hour. Well, with dilution, you never change all the air in the hour. It's all uh, asymptotic. You, you, you keep blending and blending and the concentration of pollutants can go down, but it never goes to zero. Um, and so it's a confusing term that people think of air exchange as well, that it, it, if I have two air changes, that means, um, you know, in a half an hour, all the air has changed in the space. And, and that's not the case. Uh, so it is com somewhat confusing. Now, there's different types of distribution systems that can um, not blend, not mix, that can improve that efficiency of ventilation. But the, the, they're very uncommon most common ones that probably in your office right now is a ceiling diffuser that's designed to uh, mix the air in the space. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> it, it, it does. I'm looking here at a chart in the white paper that seems illustrative, but maybe I'm not understanding it correctly. Um, and it, I think the purpose of it is to illustrate why, you know, large droplets aren't going to be filtered out by a system like this. Um, and it's showing the 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 vectors of air movement near a, a ventilation grill of some kind. And you can see from this image that obviously close to the grill, air is moving quickly. Farther away, it's not necessarily being moved at all. So things, particles might not be getting sucked into this vent from all over the room. It's mostly going to be close to the to the grill itself. What should the main takeaway yeah. be if we think about this? Well, we have an expression we could say, uh, you can't suck out a match. Um, so you can easily <laughs> blow out a match. Um, but if you tried to suck out a match, you would burn your lips before it, the flame actually went out. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, that, that expression is to uh, clarify what that picture looks like, is that basically that return grill or exhaust grill is, as you said, the vectors are high right next to it, but you go two feet away and it's not even there. And so if I coughed and those aerosols started uh, uh, blending in the air, it's not like that grill's a vacuum cleaner and it's going to suck all the, uh, the bad particles out. It, it's only going to suck things out that blend with the air and behave like a gas and they, and they mix with the air and then they just very gently uh, will be drawn uh, out of the space through that grill. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that this, you know, mitigation, total mitigation of transmission, maybe that's not the right way to put this, but you mentioned infinite ventilation. And I think one place that it's become increasingly clear that we're not seeing high transmission rates um, of COVID is outdoors. Is that what you would describe as an infinite ventilation circumstance? Um, very much so. I mean, I think it's, it's uh, uh, there's lots of things happening outdoors, uh, including inactivation by the sun, um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's beneficial as well. But the fact that it is in a confined space, that there's wind and other air patterns. And you also tend to be, when you're outdoors, not necessarily staying next to somebody for very long. Time is a big factor here because um, you know, it's exposure times the time. Um, and so if you're outside and you're moving around and, and um, it, it's, I mean, the, the epidemiology shows that it's very safe uh, to do. And that's really why... I got more convinced that the aerosol path is real because of the fact that being outdoors is, is so protective. I'm speaking with Steve Taylor, a mechanical engineer and founding principal of Taylor Engineering, about ventilation in buildings and to what extent that's relevant in the conversation about stopping the spread of the coronavirus. The white paper doesn't necessarily, you know, make me feel 
really excited about ventilation, which I think is probably the point. Um, but there is one thing that did make me feel pretty good and that might might be nice for people to hear, um, which is that it doesn't seem like air circulating from different office floors is really going to be a, a vector of transmission. And it hasn't... The, the research that you've looked at doesn't demonstrate any infections of any disease being caused by recirculation, not just COVID-19. So is, is that a safe takeaway here? We shouldn't worry about infection via recirculated air? Um, yes. Uh, it, no one has ever shown that path to actually exist. So the, the idea is that somebody coughs on the first floor and somebody on the third floor gets sick um, because of the, they, they share a common HVAC system. Um, it's never been shown to happen. Um, the closest evidence we've had that it that something might be happening is a, a hospital in Oregon where they found RNA um, of of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, in the filters, um, and you say, "Aha! Well, that means that the that it got up there. Therefore, it could also be recirculated and blown into another space." But having the um, RNA there does not mean that it was viable. You know, that's just sort of that's the that's dead virus. You don't care about dead ones. We care about live ones. They also, it was, the concentration is going to be so low by the time you draw the air out of the space and then it blends with return air from other spaces, then blends with outside air at the air handler, and then goes through a filter and, and gets even further diluted. It's just, it's just extremely unlikely and very, very few people are even suggesting that, that it is a viable path. The white paper notes that the recommendations in it don't always align with um, those issued by mm, other organizations. I'm going to cite ASHRAE here, which is a long acronym, um, but it's a relevant engineers association. Are there differences of opinion or interpretation of research that would be you know, meaningful to a layperson between what this white paper recommends and what these associations recommend? Well, there's always differences of opinion in this kind of thing. Um, as one uh, Milton, one of the guy uh, professors that is uh, quite well known in this stuff, he said that we've spent a hundred more than a hundred years trying to figure out how flu is transmitted and haven't figured that out yet. So it's not surprising that we have disagreement on how uh, COVID spreads. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we, there's disagreement. I tend to be on the side of as much concerned about climate change and energy impacts as I as I am by COVID transmission, and other people choose to be, you know, uh, much more cautious um, on on the transmission versus energy. So there's always a judgment call uh, in these kind of things. Looking at the science, I, I'm pretty confident that what our white paper says um, is is accurate. And over time, the uh, other organizations have. Um, you know, at first they're going to react and be super conservative, and that's understandable. But as we start doing research, um, they they are backing off on a lot of these recommendations as well. I mean, ASHRAE started out saying run systems 24-7 and run them at 100% outside air with no recirculation, and they've completely backed off on, on that uh, since, you know, as the research filed in as well. While, while I do have, you know, some differences of opinion and recommendations, they've really shrunk between our position and ASHRAE's position. Mm -hmm. Is there a general takeaway that you can offer for what um, what you recommend for building owners or um, operators of, of office buildings um, when it comes to ventilation and, and COVID-19 at this point? What we're recommending to our, our clients is first, 
make sure your ventilation uh, system is working. Um, you'd be amazed how many are not working, uh, just oh, no. poor, poor maintenance. Um, and so is, is the one, calculate what the ventilation rate should be according to, to code. So code in California is called Title 24, and it specifies how much air you need um, as a function of the number of people in the area of the space. And the first thing to do is calculate what that should be. And then you make sure you're getting it by, by measuring it. And you make sure that the controls that are intended to ensure you, you, you get that ventilation rate all the time um, are actually working. And as I said earlier, we're pretty comfortable that providing code minimum ventilation um, is, uh, provides reasonable risk on the uh, aerosol path, uh, provided masks are, are worn. So that's what we're telling people. And then we say uh, bump up your filter efficiency. So we call it MERV, Minimum um, Efficiency Reported Value, strange acronym. Uh, but MERV 13 is, is the efficiency that everybody seems to be agreeing with as a, a reasonable uh, efficiency at a reasonable cost. Um, again, if that what we call air handler transmission, uh, air handler scale transmission, where you cough on the first floor and somebody gets infected on the third floor, if that doesn't occur, then filtration efficiency really doesn't matter. But it, you know, to be cautious, we need filters anyway. Uh, MERV 13 is is uh, not an impractical requirement at all. And I, I think you mentioned earlier about the the uh, wildfires. Uh, we need filters as well um, to mitigate uh, wildfire smoke. Um, yes. And so, so that's a, another factor. So the the good filters help in both uh, that regard. Yes, that is where I was going to go next because you had brought up climate change. And as the year advances, there is a climate related and air related issue looming, which is, as you say, wildfires. And I think we all remember the sky turning orange last year. And that's just for those of us lucky enough not to have been personally affected by fires directly. So that poses a ventilation question. Um, And Fortune actually puts it this way. The coronavirus is forcing a difficult choice as the fires rage, whether to let in outside air to reduce the risk of infections or seal buildings up tight to keep out smoke particles. Do you agree with that framing? Are building operators going to face a dilemma here? They're assuming that you can't do any recirculation and have it be safe. The virus uh, is, is very small, but it doesn't ride around all by itself. It's, it's always going to be on a particle that is emitted when you cough or talk or laugh. Um, and those particles are readily uh, filterable. Um, so mm-hmm. the MERV-13 filter is going to take out most of those particles. And, um, and if it doesn't do it on one pass, it'll do it on the next pass. It's all about dilution. It doesn't have to be 100% efficient to be effective. It just has to keep uh, uh, reducing the concentration. They're thinking, oh, you have to have outside air to do this, uh, this filtering. Well, you don't. Uh, the filter removes the particles too. Um, and so it, it, uh, and it does so much more energy efficiently. If you want to choose between more outside air and more filtering or better filtering, uh, better filtering is, is always more cost effective, uh, both from a first cost and energy cost standpoint. So you still have to maintain ventilation rates in, in buildings. Um, that's required by law. And so you don't seal it up and close everything up and, uh, to protect yourself from wildfire smoke because that's not allowed. Um, you instead reduce the ventilation to the minimum. Um, we have this control we call an economizer that brings in more outside air when the weather's really mild, cool and mild, uh, to reduce energy use. Uh, well, you temporarily turn that off and you forego the energy savings of, of the economizer. Um, you go down to the minimum and then you put in good filters. And what we've been doing is putting in MERV uh, 15 filters, a little bit better than the MERV 13, 
because it has uh, a higher efficiency for some of the really small particles that aren't MERV, I mean, aren't uh, COVID related, but are wildfire related. Uh, so smoke is a, a wide range of particles, including gases. And so we also suggest that during the event of the uh, smoke, when it's just really bad, is you put in a activated charcoal pre-filter in front of your normal MERV 15 filters, and that can tell, take away some of the gaseous um, odors. Uh, and so the combination of that filter and the MERV 15 filter, you can run a building pretty much odor free. Forgive me if this is a stupid question because I don't understand, um, you know, this kind of engineering. But if you add additional layers of filtration, aren't you also going to increase the energy that it takes to move air through that system? Yes, uh, you are. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't, um, it's not linear. Um, in, in other words, if you use MERV 13 versus MERV, you know, 6 or something, it's not, you know, t twice as much energy. It, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it depends on the, the design of the kind of filter. So we can get a high efficiency filter if it's really small, like a two inch uh, pleated filter you might have on your home furnace or a one inch filter to go to, to MERV 13 on that would be very difficult to do without uh, affecting the airflow that the, the units actually, you know, basically will clog it up. Hmm. Um, but if on a bigger system that we have in commercial buildings, um, we have room for four inch filters or 12 inch filters or 30 inch filters. And when you get in, you know, deeper filters, they have more surface area, so you can get the higher efficiencies at a at a lower pressure drop. These um these Merv, I think it was thirteen filters. I did see those mentioned um, in stories from last year in in news reports, um, and specifically in the context of both wildfires and COVID, that there that a shortage had developed of these filters. Is that still the case? Is that something we need to worry about going forward? Um, yes, that is a, still the case. Uh, but since everybody said that was the number you should buy, um, everybody, everybody started buying it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then it, it became this universal number. Um, it's mentioned in, in LEED, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, which is a green building standard. Uh, and it's been in there since you know 1998 or whenever that came out um, as the magic number for filters. Uh, ASHRAE came out and said it should be 13. California has now required for the last uh, code cycle that you have MERV 13 um, as, as well. So it's this magic number that everything was there. And then um, so everybody went out and bought it. And of course, that that causes a shortage. You can buy it. It's just the price and demand eventually will equalize things or go to MERV 15. You don't have to stop at 13. Um, so if I'm a if I'm a commercial building with a large air handling system, um, you can almost surely go to MERV 15 uh, without causing any kind of uh, high enough pressure drop that it causes problems. Mm -hmm. and, and so there isn't a, a, a big energy consumption concern there if you go from one to the, to the next step up. It, it's a, it is an increase in energy use, but it's way less than increasing your ventilation rate, but you know, bringing in more outside air. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's not even comparable. So in the white paper, there's a study that was done that shows that how much energy and uh, at all costs, the first cost, uh, energy cost and the media cost for changing your filters um, versus the energy cost for increasing your ventilation rate. And not only is filtration um, more effective at reducing uh, uh, risks of transmission, uh, but it's also uh, less expensive to, to uh, both from a first cost and an energy cost standpoint. Mm-hmm. 
you've mentioned a couple of times this uh, the idea of bringing in outside air and how that's adding bringing in more outside air through ventilation is more energy uh, uh, consumes more energy than um, having better filtration. Um, and I just want to be clear that you're talking there about using a, a powered ventilation system to bring in outside air, um, not just you know opening the windows. And I wonder if opening the windows gets you more, you know, energy efficient ventilation, let's say in the absence of smoke, when you would want to open the windows um, if you have them. A couple of things here. You know, one is I mentioned that economizer operation where we deliberately bring in more outside air um, at times when the weather is roughly be, you know, below 75 and above uh, 35 or 40. Uh, we bring in lots of outside air because it actually makes our building use less energy. Um, it's when it's hot outside and very cold outside that the energy impact uh, occurs. Um, and then at the, at the, this gets complicated, but uh, our, most of our systems are variable volume systems. That means we supply a varying amount of air depending on what the load is in the space. If we allow the air to, to uh, drop down to just what the ventilation um, rate is required, we can save a lot of energy. So uh, we, we not only look at w whether the air is outside air versus filtered recirculated air, but how much air are you supplying um, at the zone level? And are, are you, you know, can you reduce the amount of air you're blowing into each, into each space? So that's the mechanical systems. And you mentioned, okay, what about operable windows? Uh, the operable windows are sort of like an unpowered economizer. You know, you, you get the ventilation, but instead of having a fan blow it in, uh, it, it occurs naturally. Um, the, the disadvantage of opening a window is that there's dirt and there's noise and there's ozone and there's you know just lots of outdoor pollutants, pollutants um, mm -hmm. that can be you know not good. Uh, whereas you don't have that problem with the mechanical uh, side of things. So there's just Got so it. many times when you can't use the windows. I mean, schools are a good example. You open the window and all the kids playing outside become a big distraction. The, the wind <laughs> blows and your papers fly. Um, you know, there's uh, when we have a, fi a smoke event, of course, then it's uh, truly bad. Um, you can't open the windows then. So mechanical systems are just sort of more consistent and reliable. Yes, they use fan energy, uh, but they, they don't have all these other side problems. Given the option between operable windows and um, just your, you know, code compliant ventilation system, um, again, absent a wildfire which would you recommend in terms of COVID uh, prevention? Well, a, a operable an open window can provide much higher ventilation rates than the mechanical system can, depending on what the weather is. But the, you know, the window doesn't just work when you open it. You have to have either a differential temperature, you've got to have some wind, you have to have some motivation that makes the air come in you know, right. and into the space. Mm. Uh, so it's going to be inconsistent into how much ventilation re requires. It can also have a negative side, which is that it can blow contaminants around. So if I'm sick and I'm near the window and I cough, the, the uh, wind from the window can blow that to another person. Mm. You know, so there's, there's, a, there's a negative uh, there as well. Our buildings are commercial buildings and they um, seldom have operable windows. Uh, operable windows are never enough to provide to meet codes for ventilation because they're not always open. So your mm -hmm. code says you can have an operable window, but you have to mechanical system anyway. 
And so we put it in the mechanical system and then the, the window then becomes just a, a, a nice to have kind of thing, an amenity. And often it gets value engineered out. You know, you're spending a lot of money on something that's truly not required for the building to function. And uh, some people like them and some people don't. The large majority of our commercial buildings end up without operable windows. Well, this has been illuminating for me. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? One of the things that I think our white paper tries to make clear is that we we need to balance the energy impacts of our mitigations with the benefits of of doing it so that we um, continue to recognize that climate change is very real. Uh, I think we're seeing right now, was it, is it 110 down there? So it's, it is hot it's, uh, in a lot of the state. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, that's not going away. Um, and so before we start saying, run your building 24 uh, seven, run with as much outside air as we need, we need to know, is that actually going to do anything for us? Mm. Um, and, and if you do, does the cost of that in terms of not, not just energy cost, but climate impact, is it really worth it? Um, and so I think for a short term, we can say, hey, forget the energy use and the climate change on a very short term. Let's do the right thing. Um, but there's going to be people that say, well, if it was good for the short term, let's do it all the time just in case another pandemic comes. Um, and I get very nervous about the impact on climate change of that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you uh, sharing these insights. You're welcome. That was Steve Taylor, founding principal of Taylor Engineering. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Before I let you go today, at the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thank you.